Chapter Fourteen of the Best Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Best Man by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Fourteen. It was not until the white dome of the Capitol and the tall needle of the monument were painted soft and vision-like against the sky, reminding one of the pictures of the heavenly city in the story of Pilgrim's Progress and faintly suggesting a new and visionary world, that he sought her again and found her fully ready, standing in the aisle while the porter put up the berth out of the way. Beneath the great brim of her purple hat, where the soft fronds of her plumes trembled with the motion of the train, she lifted sweet eyes to him, as if she were both glad and frightened to see him and then that ecstasy shot through him again, as he realized suddenly what it would be to have her for his life companion, to feel her looks of gladness were all for him, and have the right to take all fright away from her. They could only smile at each other for good morning, for everybody was standing up and being brushed, and pushing here and there for suitcases and lost umbrellas, and everybody talked loudly, and laughed a great deal, and told how late the train was. Then at last they were there, and could get out and walk silently side by side in the noisy procession through the station to the sidewalk. What little things sometimes change a lifetime and make for our safety or our destruction. That very morning three keen watchers were set to guard that station at Washington to hunt out the government spy who had stolen back the stolen message, and take him message and all, dead or alive, back to New York, for the man who could testify against the Holman combination was not to be let live, if there was such a thing as getting him out of the way. But they never thought to watch the special, which was supposed to carry only delegates to the great convention. He could not possibly be on that. They knew he was coming from Pittsburgh, for they had been so advised by telegram the evening before by one of their company, who had seen him buying a sleeper ticket for Washington. But they felt safe about that special, for they had made inquiries, and been told no one but delegates could possibly come on it. They had done their work thoroughly, and were on hand with every possible plan perfected for bagging their game. But they took the time when the Pittsburgh special was expected to arrive, for eating a hearty breakfast in the restaurant across the street from the station, Two of them emerged from the restaurant doorway in plenty of time to meet the next Pittsburgh train, just as Gordon, having placed the lady in a closed carriage, was getting in himself. If the carriage had stood in any other spot along the pavement in front of the station, they never would have seen him, but, as it was, they had a full view of him, and because they were Washington men and experts in their line, they recognized him at once and knew their plans had failed, and that only by extreme measures could they hope to prevent the delivery of the message, which would mean downfall and disaster to them and their schemes. As Gordon slammed shut the door of the carriage, he caught a vision of his two enemies pointing excitedly toward him, and he knew that the bloodhounds were on the scent. His heart beat wildly. His anxiety was divided between the message and the lady. What should he do? drive at once to the home of his chief and deliver the message, or leave the girl at his rooms, phone for a faster conveyance, and trust to getting to his chief ahead of his pursuers? Don't let anything hinder you, 
don't let anything hinder you. Make it a matter of life and death, rang the little ditty in his ears, and now it seemed as if he must go straight ahead with the message. And yet, a matter of life and death, he could not, must not, might not take the lady with him into danger. If he must be in danger of death, he did not want to die having exposed an innocent stranger to the same. Then there was another point to be thought of. He had already told the driver to take him to his apartments, and to drive as rapidly as possible. It would not do to stop him now and change the directions, for a pistol shot could easily reach him yet. And, coming from a crowd, who would be suspected? His enemies were standing on the threshold of a place where there were many of their kind to protect them, and none of his friends knew of his coming. It would be a race for life from now on to the finish. Celia was looking out with interest at the streets, recognizing landmarks with wonder, and did not notice Gordon's white, set face and burning eyes as he strained his vision to note how fast the horse was going. Oh, if the driver would only turn off at the next corner, into the side street, they could not watch the carriage so far. But it was not likely, for this was the most direct road, and yet, yes, he had turned. Joy! The street here was so crowded that he had sought the narrower, less crowded way that he might go the faster. It seemed an age to him before they stopped at his apartments. To Celia it had been but a short ride, in which familiar scenes had brought her pleasure, for she recognized that she was not in strange Chicago, but in Washington, a city often visited. Somehow she felt it was an omen of a better future than she had feared. Oh, why didn't you tell me? she smiled to Gordon. It is Washington, dear old Washington. Somehow he controlled the tumult in his heart and smiled back, saying in a voice quite natural, I am so glad you like it. She seemed to understand that they could not talk until they reached a quiet place somewhere, and she did not trouble him with questions. Instead, she looked from the window, or watched him furtively, comparing him with her memory of George Hayne, and wondering in her own thoughts. She was glad to have them to herself for just this little bit, for now that the morning had come, she was almost afraid of revelation, what it might bring forth. And so it came about that they took the swift ride in more or less silence, and neither thought it strange. As the carriage stopped, he spoke with low, hurried voice, tense with excitement, but her own nerves were on a strain also, and she did not notice. We get out here. He had the fare ready for the driver, and stepping out, hurried Celia into the shelter of the hallway. It happened that an elevator had just come down, so it was but a second more before they were up safe in the hall before his own apartment. Taking a latch key from his pocket, he applied it to the door, flung it open, and ushered Celia to a large leather chair in the middle of the room. Then, stepping quickly to the side of the room, he touched a bell, and from it went to the telephone with an, Excuse me, please, this is necessary, to the girl, who sat astonished, wondering at the homelikeness of this room, and at the at-homeness of the man. She had expected to be taken to a hotel. This seemed to be a private apartment, with which he was perfectly acquainted. Perhaps it belonged to some friend. But how, after an absence of years, could he remember just where to go, which door and which elevator to take, 
and how to fit the key with so accustomed a hand. Then her attention was arrested by his voice. "'Give me 254L, please,' he said. "'Is this 254L? Is Mr. Osborne in? "'You say he has not gone to the office yet? "'May I speak with him? "'Is this Mr. Osborne? "'I did not expect you to know my voice. "'Yes, sir, just arrived, and all safe so far. "'Shall I bring it to the house or the office? "'The house? "'All right, sir, immediately. "'By the way,' I am sure Hale and Burke are on my track. They saw me at the station. To your house? You will wait until I come? All right, sir. Yes, immediately. Sure, I'll take precaution. Goodbye. With the closing words came a tap at the door. Come, Henry, he answered, as the astonished girl turned toward the door. Henry, you will go down, please, to the restaurant and bring up a menu card. This lady will select what she would like to have, and you will serve breakfast for her in this room as soon as possible. I shall be out for perhaps an hour, and meantime you will obey any orders she may give you. He did not introduce her as his wife, but she did not notice the omission. She had suddenly become aware of a strange, distraught haste in his manner, and when he said he was going out, alarm seized her. She could not tell why. The man bowed deferentially to his master, looked his admiration and devotion to the lady, waited long enough to say, "'I's mighty glad to see you back safe, sir,' and disappeared to obey orders. Celia turned toward Gordon for an explanation, but he was already at the telephone again. Forty-six, Is this the garage? This is the Harris Apartments. Can you send Thomas with a closed car to the rear door immediately?' Yes. No, I want Thomas in a car that can speed. Yes. The rear door. Rear. And at once. What? What's that? But I must... It's official business. Well, I thought so. Hurry them up. Goodbye. He turned and saw her troubled gaze following him with growing fear in her eyes. What is the matter? she asked anxiously. "'Has something happened?' "'Just one moment he paused, "'and coming toward her laid his hands on hers tenderly. "'Nothing the matter at all,' he said soothingly. "'At least nothing that need worry you. "'It is just a matter of pressing business. "'I'm sorry to have to go from you for a little while, "'but it is necessary. "'I cannot explain to you until I return. "'You will trust me? "'You will not worry?' "'I will try.' Her lips were quivering, and her eyes were filled with tears. Again he felt that intense longing to lay his lips upon hers and comfort her, but he put it from him. "'There is nothing to feel sad about,' he said, smiling gently. "'It is nothing tragic, only there is need for haste, for if I wait, I may fail yet. It is something that means a great deal to me. When I come back, I will explain all.' "'Go!' she said, putting out her hands in a gesture of resignation, as if she would hurry him from her. And though she was burning to know what it all meant, there was that about him that compelled her to trust him and to wait. Then his control almost went from him. He nearly took those hands in his and kissed them, but he did not. Instead, he went with swift steps to his bedroom door, threw open a chiffonier drawer, and took therefrom something small and sinister, she could see the gleam of its polished metal, 
and she sensed a strange little menace in the click as he did something to it. She could not see what, because his back was to her. He came out with his hand in his pocket, as if he had just hidden something there. She was not familiar with firearms. Her mother had been afraid of them, and her brother had never flourished any around the house, yet she knew by instinct that some weapon of defense was in Gordon's possession, and a nameless horror rose in her heart and shone from her blue eyes, but she would not speak a word to let him know it. If he had not been in such haste, he would have seen. Her horror would have been still greater if she had known that he already carried one loaded revolver and was taking a second in case of an emergency. "'Don't worry,' he called as he hurried out the door. "'Henry will get anything you need, and I shall soon be back.' The door closed, and he was gone. She heard his quick step down the hall, heard the elevated door slide and slam again, and then she knew he was gone down. Outside an automobile sounded, and she seemed to hear again his words at the phone. The rear door. Why had he gone to the rear door? Was he in hiding? Was he flying from someone?' What? Oh, what did it mean? Without stopping to reason it out, she flew across the room and opened the door of the bedroom he had just left, then through it passed swiftly to a bathroom beyond. Yes, there was a window. Would it be the one? Could she see him? And what good would it do her if she could? She crowded close to the window. There was a heavy sash with stained glass, but she selected a clear bit of yellow and put her eye close. Yes, there was a closed automobile just below her, and it had started away from the building. He had gone then. Where? Her mind was a blank for a few minutes. She went slowly, mechanically back to the other room, without noticing anything about her, sat down in the chair, putting her hands to her temples, and tried to think, back to the moment in the church, where he had appeared at her side, and the service had begun. Something had told her then, that he was different. And yet there had been those letters, and how could it possibly be that he had not written them? He was gone on some dangerous business, of that she felt sure. There had been some caution given him by the man to whom he first phoned. He had promised to take precaution. That meant the little wicked gleaming thing in his pocket. Perhaps some harm would come to him, and she would never know. And then she stared at the opposite wall, with wonder-filled eyes. Well, and suppose it did. Why did she care? Was he not the man whose power over her but two short days ago would have made her welcome death as her deliverer? Why was all changed now? Just because he had smiled upon her and been kind? Had given her a few wild flowers and said her eyes were like them? Had hair that waved instead of being straight and thin? And where was all her loyalty to her dear, dead father's memory? How could she mind that danger should come to one who had threatened to tell terrible lies that should blacken him in the thoughts of people who had loved him? Had she forgotten the letters? Was she willing to forgive all, just because he had declared that he did not write them? How foolish! He said he could prove that he did not, but of course that was all nonsense. He must have written them. And yet there was the wave in his hair, and the kindness in his eyes, and he had looked, oh, he had looked terrible things when he had read that letter, as if he would like to wreak vengeance on the man who had written it. 
Could a man masquerade that way? And then a new solution to the problem came to her. Suppose this, whoever he was, this man who had married her, had gone out to find and punish George Hain. Suppose... But then she covered her eyes with her hands and shuddered. Yet, why should she care? But she did. Suppose he should be killed himself. Who was he, if not George Hain? And how did he come to take his place? Was it just another of George's terrible tricks upon her? A quick vision came of their bringing him back to her. He would lie, perhaps, on that great crimson leather couch over there, just as he had lain in the dawning of the morning in the stateroom of the train, with his hands hanging limp, and one, perhaps, across his breast, as if he were guarding something, and his bright waves of brown hair lying heavy about his forehead. Only his forehead would be white, so white and cold, with a little blue mark in his temple, perhaps. The footsteps of the man Henry brought her back to the present again, she smiled at him pleasantly as he entered, and answered his questions about what she would have for breakfast, but it was he who selected the menu, not she, and after he had gone, she could not have told what she had ordered. She could not get away from the vision on the couch. She closed her eyes and pressed her cold fingers against her eyeballs to drive it away, but still her bridegroom seemed to lie there before her. The colored man came back presently with a loaded tray, and set it down on a little table, which he wheeled before her, as though he had done it many times before. She thanked him, and said there was nothing else she needed, so he went away. She toyed with the cup of delicious coffee which he had poured for her, and the few swallows she took gave her new heart. She broke a bit from a hot roll, and ate a little of the delicious steak, but still her mind was at work at the problem, and her heart was full of nameless anxiety. He had gone away without any breakfast himself, and he had had no supper the night before, she was sure. He probably had given to her everything he could get on the train. She was haunted with regret, because she had not shared with him. She got up and walked about the room, trying to shake off the horror that was upon her, and the dread of what the morning might bring forth. Ordinarily she would have thought of sending a message to her mother and brother, but her mind was so troubled now that it never occurred to her. The walls of the room were tinted a soft greenish-gray, and above the picture-molding they blended into a woodsy landscape with a hint of water, greensward, and blue sky through interlacing branches. It reminded her of the little village they had seen as they started from the train in the early morning light. What a beautiful day they had spent together! and how it had changed her whole attitude of heart toward the man she had married. Two or three fine pictures were hung in good lights. She studied them, and knew that the one who had selected and hung them was a judge of true art. But they did not hold her attention long, for as yet she had not connected the room with the man for whom she waited. A handsome mahogany desk stood open in a broad space by the window, she was attracted by a little painted miniature of a woman. She took it up and studied the face. It was fine and sweet, with brown hair dressed low, and eyes that reminded her of the man who had just gone from her. Was this then the home of some relative, with whom he had come to stop for a day or two? And if so, where was the relative? 
The dress in the miniature was of a quarter of a century past, yet the face was young and sweet, as young, perhaps, as herself. She wondered who it was. She put the miniature back in place with a caressing hand. She felt that she would like to know this woman with the tender eyes. She wished her here now, that she might tell her all her anxiety. Her eye wandered to the pile of letters, some of them official-looking ones, one or two in square, perfumed envelopes, with high, angular writing. They were all addressed to Mr. Cyril Gordon. That was strange. Who was Mr. Cyril Gordon? What had they, what had she, to do with him? Was he a friend whom George, whom they were visiting for a few days? It was all bewildering. Then the telephone rang. Her heart beat wildly, and she looked toward it as if it had been a human voice speaking, and she had no power to answer. What should she do now? Should she answer, or should she wait for the man to come? Could the man hear the telephone bell, or was she perhaps expected to answer? And yet, if Mr. Cyril Gordon... Well, somebody ought to answer. The phone rang insistently once more, and still a third time. What if he should be calling her? Perhaps he was in distress. This thought sent her flying to the phone. She took down the receiver and called, Hello! And her voice sounded far away to herself. Is this Mr. Gordon's apartment? Yes, she answered, for her eyes were resting on the pile of letters close at hand. Is Mr. Gordon there? No, he is not, she answered, growing more confident now, and almost wishing she had not presumed to answer a stranger's phone. Why, I just phoned to the office, and they told me he had returned, said a voice that had an imperious note in it. Are you sure he isn't there? Quite sure, she replied. Who is this, please? I beg your pardon, said Celia, trying to make time and knowing not how to reply. She was not any longer Miss Hathaway. Who was she? Mrs. Hayne? She shrank from the name. It was filled with horror for her. Who is this, I said, snapped the other voice now. Is this the chambermaid? Because if it is, I'd like you to look around and inquire and be quite sure that Mr. Gordon isn't there. I wish to speak with him about something very important. Celia smiled. No, this is not the chambermaid, she said sweetly, and I am quite sure Mr. Gordon is not here. How long before he will be there? I don't know, really, for I have but just come myself. Who is this to whom I am talking? Why, just a friend, she answered, wondering if that were the best thing to say. Oh! There was a long and contemplative pause at the other end. Well, could you give Mr. Gordon a message when he comes in? Why, certainly, I think so. Who's this? Miss Bentley. Julia Bentley. He'll know, replied the imperious one eagerly now. And tell him, please, that he is expected here to dinner tonight. We need him to complete the number, and he simply mustn't fail me. I'll excuse him for going off in such a rush if he comes early and tells me all about it. Now you won't forget, will you? You got the name Bentley, did you? B-E-N-T-L-E-Y, you know. And you'll tell him the minute he comes in? Yes. Thank you. What did you say your name was? But Celia had hung up. 
Somehow the message annoyed her. She could not tell why. She wished she had not answered the phone. Whoever Mr. Cyril Gordon was, what should she do if he should suddenly appear? And as for this imperious lady and her message, she hoped she would never have to deliver it. On second thought, why not write it and leave it on his desk with the pile of letters? She would do it. It would serve to pass away a few of these dreadful minutes that lagged so distressfully. She sat down and wrote, Miss Bentley wishes Mr. Gordon to dine with her this evening. She will pardon his running away the other day if he will come early. She laid it beside the high angular writing on the square perfume letters and went back to the leather chair, too restless to rest, yet too weary to stand up. She went presently to the back windows to look out, and then to the side ones. Across the housetops she could catch a glimpse of domes and buildings. There was the Congressional Library, which usually delighted her, with its exquisite tones of gold and brown and white. But she had no eyes for it now. Beyond were more buildings, all set in the lovely foliage, which was much farther developed than it had been in New York State. From another window she could get a glimpse of the Potomac, shining in the morning sun. She wandered to the front windows and looked out. There were people passing and repassing. It was a busy street, but she could not make out whether it was one she knew or not. There were two men walking back and forth on the opposite side. They did not go further than the corner of the street either way. They looked across at the windows sometimes and pointed up when they met, and once one of them took something out of his pocket and flashed it under his coat at his side, as if to have it ready for use. It reminded her of the thing her husband had held in his hand in the bedroom, and she shuddered. She watched them, fascinated, not able to draw herself away from the window. Now and then she would go to the rear window to see if there was any sign of the automobile returning, and then hurry back to the front to see if the men were still there. Once she returned to the chair, and lying back, shut her eyes, and let the memory of yesterday sweep over her, in all its sweet details, up to the time when they had got into the way train, and she had seemed to feel her disloyalty to her father. But now her heart was all on the other side, and she began to feel that there had been some dreadful mistake somewhere, and he was surely all right. He could not, could not have written those terrible letters. Then again, the details of their wild carriage ride in Pittsburgh and miraculous escape haunted her. There was something strange and unexplained about that which she must understand. End of chapter 14